You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Thank you for joining me here again for another conversation about cool collaborations on this, our sixth episode of the podcast. Today, I am honored to speak with Jorge Aviles, where we'll explore his insights and experience from around the globe as a kind of cross-cultural diplomat. Jorge tells me about how the combination of growing up in Argentina, his training in international studies, and some unique world experiences have shaped his view of collaboration. We touch on the ability to speak across boundaries and how it can be shaped to go beyond solutions. This is a fantastic conversation with Jorge. Please enjoy. Jorge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I was wondering today if you could just kick off our conversation by maybe giving a little bit of background. How did you get to here? What's a snapshot of your journey from, from when you were little to now? So, uh, wow, from when I was little, uh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I grew up uh, in, uh, in South America, in Argentina. My parents were immigrants from Spain. They had left Spain from uh, during the Civil War. And, uh, and, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you asked this because it actually sets up a little bit of a background into why I did the career shift that I made, you know, later on in life. Needless to say, I grew up, you know, in a, in a really mixed culture environment. And, uh, I, I was, uh, I was a musician from, a musician from very early age. And I was, um, you know, told that I was going to be an engineer, that I had the brain for that. And so I went to university and I became an engineer, but then I repented. <laughs> and that's how I introduced myself. I was an engineer once, but I repented. And, and the reason being is that, uh, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a few really successful years as an engineer, but that's not where my heart was at. And so I went back to school and I took international studies. I took a postgraduate in French and Spanish into, you know, project management. There was a lot of marketing, et cetera. And that's actually what landed me this really good job into, it was an international greenfield operations, you know, so I was in charge of starting new operations uh, in Mexico at the time, in France, I had one in Germany, et cetera. So it was all about cross-cultural communications and about, you know, negotiating with people from different backgrounds, et cetera. And while I was doing that, you know, in those days, this is, I'm telling you, over 20, it's almost 25 years ago now, I, you know, I started to notice the discrepancies between, you know, what we were paying for a hotel for one of the executives to stay at, which was between four and $600 a night, and what the indigenous people in whatever local area of Mexico or Africa were getting paid which was maybe four or five dollars a day. And, and that started bothering me. And so I was telling a friend of mine about, you know, how we how do we reconcile, you know, what we're doing to these to these portions, these sectors of society. 
and how can we justify it, right? How can we how can we go on like this? His answer was, you know, you need to come to Africa with me. And and the next few words that came out of my mouth, which I ate one by one, <laughs> were, why would anybody go to Africa? And so he said, well, you know, let me pay, let me pay you the ticket. And he took me first to Ivory Coast, and then we flew on a United Nations helicopter into Sierra Leone during the Diamonds War. I had a simple mission of taking pictures in a refugee camp of the kids that had been amputated by the rebels in Sierra Leone, and uh, it changed my mind. It changed, it changed my life. It changed the way I saw the world. It changed everything about me. All of a sudden, I realized that the answer to the question that I had asked about how do we kill this, this gap, how do we fill this gap, how do we terminate all this, this treatment, this abusive treatment, how do we start collaborating with different groups meant uh, all of a sudden was a matter of informing people. I just realized that people that the people that are informed, people that know what's going on, cannot not do something about it. So that was the beginning of my new life, and I, so I did sustainable development projects in uh, over thirty countries around the world. And when I stopped being forty-five, <laughs> and, and I got a little bit tired into you know sleep in some conditions, you know, I uh, decided that I was going to translate these uh, skills and maybe start using some of the experience that I had doing uh, Indigenous relations here in Canada. So, you know, I do a little bit of that. My main focus is still on, you know, enhancing the conversation. So breaking cross-cultural barriers and enhancing the conversation because I think that collaboration doesn't happen in many cases because we do not understand each other. We still fail to understand our interests, etc. So um, I don't know if that was too long an intro, but that's that's how I discovered my passion. Well, that's a, that's a perfect intro. And what I kind of wonder from what you've been saying is that you started off from a cross-cultural, in a cross-cultural setting, and then it took you a while almost to discover what that cross-cultural setting meant. Is that a fair depiction of it? Yeah, totally. In fact, growing up, I always thought that I didn't really belong to one culture. And, you know, I grew up in a, in a country in a time where many people had gone down to Argentina from all sorts of places in Europe, etc., because of the war. And so I grew up in a culture where you were not Argentinian, you were Italian or Spanish or you were Welsh or you were Ukrainian or you were German, etc., right? And so uh, there was this lack of cohesion among the cultures. There was so much division that you got used to this idea of learning how to survive and thrive and make friends and get respect and etc uh, from people that definitely came from different cultures right so that had different sets of values that had different backgrounds different reasons to be there etc and so when i started doing international work i discovered that i had a set of skills i didn't know i had which was being able to 
find identity not on differences, right? So saying my background is French, Spanish. Instead of doing that, I can actually focus on what brings identity to everybody via similarities. So what are some of the things that give us all a human identity, no matter what cultural background we were raised in? So your, your upbringing gave you that platform that you didn't realize you had. How did the education play into that? So how did your, your shift, uh, well, obviously away from engineering, but the, how did the education that you took kind of support that? Or did, did it support that transition? Absolutely, because what that meant is, was, you know, I, I went full, full force into this idea of becoming an international project manager. And so at the time, uh, you know, all the practicum work that I had to do or some of the lectures, you know, the people that were in charge of, of, of this portion of my education, they were either from Switzerland or there were people from Africa or there were people from Mexico, there were people, etc. right? So all of a sudden, I started to discover that no matter where these people came from, regardless of the accents they had or the languages they spoke or what their values, you know, intrinsic values were uh, dependent on the culture they came from, that there was a common thread among all of them. And, and that was the fact that they were all human. And so there was the new challenge was to not just to translate uh, languages or translate systems or translate approaches to project management, but it was that we that we actually have more in common than we thought. So the other part of that, so you had an educational piece, and I like that. It seems like there's a bit of a common a common thread of cross cultural background, cross cultural education, and then it seemed like it took, for lack of a better word, I'll call him a mentor that took you and exposed you into something sort of maybe outside your comfort zone a little bit. And how did that? You kind of described how it happened. How important was that in your track of life? You know, I, I wish I could say I only had this guy as a mentor. You know, the reality is one of the most incredible things that happened in my life, you know, throughout my life was running into these incredible people. You know, I think I mentioned this to you. You know, one of the things that I did as a child was I was a singer. I was a natural singer. I grew up with a voice. And so, uh, but I was very shy. And it took this one guy that heard me once singing and said, can I work with your voice? And he was the one who took me under his his wing. And, and, and I started singing in Germany and started singing in New York, etc., in several places. And, and if it hadn't been for that mentorship, you know, the same thing with, with cross-cultural work, you know, there, there are some people, there are seasoned people that have discovered this idea of being able to go beyond cross-cultural barriers to discover the human in, in all of us. And when these people see a capacity in you to perhaps get it, you know, if you can say that, when they see that you are the kind of person that gets it, that in fact, that we, instead of focusing on differences, 
we need to focus more on what's common to all of us, then these people, like I do now right, with, with younger people, these people actually see a, a value in investing, investing time. And, and, and interestingly enough, these are the kind of people that instead of telling you, because they know that you actually have a built-in sense of what this is all about, they more or less ask you the questions that are going to provoke the right answers. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's more a case of mentorship through, through exposure, right? Through exposure to different scenarios so that all of a sudden the differences become something that you celebrate, right? So, you, you know, this, I have an issue with this way of saying, you know, we need to become colorblind, for instance. You know, God forbid that I become colorblind. There's nothing wrong about being black or being indigenous or being female or being whatever. I think that what we need to do is not forget about the differences, but, but celebrate them and, and, and recognize that in the differences, there is still a common thread. We're all human. You know, you've kind of led me into a question that you, you've kind of answered it in a couple of different ways, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious to see what other aspects you're going to point to. You've obviously had, you know, experience in collaboration across, you know, a number of different cultural settings. And so I'm wondering if you can point to some commonalities that you've experienced and maybe if there's any examples that you can point to to sort of illustrate, you know, those commonalities. You know, uh, I think, you know, I'm going to start exactly with the opposite of that. I think that one of the most frustrating things when you're trying to manage a project from a cross-cultural or within a cross-cultural environment, I think, and when I mean cross-cultural, I don't mean just different ethnicities or, or countries. I mean also, you know, you have corporate cultures and you have emergency cultures and you have, you know, so all these people think in different ways because they've been trained to think differently, right? So I remember, for instance, um, I was in Mexico. I was just finishing a, a phase of a, of a project there. And I get a phone call uh, on my way to the airport. Uh, and they said, we're flying you to El Salvador. There has been a major earthquake there. And we need your help putting some teams together for emergency. And so I get there and there is, you know, the Red Cross is there and the United Nations is there. And each one of those groups, the people that were there, thought that they had the answer. And so their culture, their background, the way that they had been trained, told them falsely so that their approach was the way to go. So instead of collaborating and instead of uh, kind of like talking about, so how can we discover what commonalities all our different backgrounds have so that we can actually focus on the people that need our help uh, instead of arguing how are we going to do this. So not just for emergencies, but being able to recognize that no matter how prepared or how holistic your approach is to something, recognizing that when you bring to the table People with different backgrounds and different cultures and different upbringings and different educations, etc. What you're actually doing is you're enhancing the capacity of a new entity, which is this collaborative entity, this this body we form by putting people together. So I think that you know that the, the way to discover that is being very aware that you don't have all the answers. 
and also recognizing that in collaboration, working with other people with different thinking and different formative years actually gives you much greater results. Is there an example of that? So you talked about the, you know, the emergency in El Salvador, but how did that turn out? Like, so how did the groups come together and how, how well did they transition from individual groups with the answer to a collective with the answer? Or did they? Well, yeah, eventually they did. But what needed to happen is they needed to understand that each one of them was there for a specific task that required their specific talents and that they were not supposed to look after everything because there might be somebody within the team, the new, the newly formed team that actually had a better formation or a better approach, a more efficient approach or whatever that might be. So it takes that recognition that all of a sudden is not you by yourself. And it, and it takes visionary people. It takes people that, that can look at a group of, of individuals or individual groups and go, this is what we can be doing. This is where I see the strengths, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, totally. So all of a sudden is not just, you know, usually when you do emergency projects like that one, you know, you're, you're looking after a group of people that just went through a major earthquake, for instance. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is survival. So all of a sudden you just identify the people that are going to be looking after, um, making sure that people are not continuing to die right? Because of, of the earthquake. But then afterwards, you have to prioritize and start combining strengths on, on, so how are we going to ensure that everybody is taken care of, not just the people that are potentially dying? I, I want to dig into that one just a little bit, because my understanding, at least of, of emergency situations, is it's often a place where authority is a very important part of of the response so when people are uncertain they're looking for somebody to say what to do and what not to do would you in, in your situation or the situation you're describing how did that play out did did each organization stay in their authoritative zone for the things they were responsible for how did that shape out in general, usually what happens is people are very proud of what they know how to do best, right? And so they have a reputation to defend, etc. But most of these organizations also have what I would call ambassadors, people that represent the group, but that have that capacity to speak to leaders or other ambassadors within the other groups and come up with a plan that actually utilizes the best of everybody. And, and, and I'm glad that you use the word authority because I'd like to clarify that sometimes it's not necessarily the authorities of the place where the, the emergency is taking place but is the authority, the inherent authority of these people that have done this so many times they know exactly what needs to happen next. Sometimes when you go to some of these places, the, the systems, you know, the authorities, the police or, or the, the local medical emergency forces that they might have are so overwhelmed and so, you know, shaken by the event that they themselves are not prepared to take control over the situation and, and find uh, a good way to, to apply solutions to the problem. So uh, there is 
there is a, a level of authority or power that comes from experience and from knowing both what you're good at, what your limitations are, and your capacity to talk to other people and discover where the complementary skills might be somewhere else. So it seems like within a group, and you talked about a number of groups in the, the El Salvador piece, there is an authority that is responsible for whatever that group is intended to do. And then there's almost another authority to use your the way you're thinking about it, another authority that is is actually the bridge builder to the other the other groups. Correct. That's exactly it. So the bridge builder is the ambassador that I was talking about. That there's somebody with the cross-cultural skills able to, you know, coordinate or work with other people, like-minded people right. to get the work going. Yeah. So is that the role that you played in that? In that or in other situations? Uh, in many cases, absolutely. And, you know, I am, I am what I, I would define as a leader from within. I'm a motivator and uh, I am the, the kind of person that doesn't necessarily take control of a situation unless nobody else does. And so I had to, in a couple of places, say, recognize that if I don't step up here, uh, we're going to be arguing about this for five days. Uh, and so you just do whatever you need to. But the reality is in most cases, like the example that I gave you, there are several people that have this collaboration sense, this sense of uh, let's put our heads together. Instead of trying to take control over everything, you just come to the realization that you do have resources that come from different places. And so the leadership becomes communal. The leadership is not just in one person, not one person coordinating, but there is there's a mentality that actually takes over uh, the group of people that are, you know, what you call the, the bridge builders. So these are the people who all of a sudden become the authority. So it's, it's more like a, a collaboration of authorities, right? A collaboration of thinking. So what does that what does that mentality look like? What does what would you say are attributes of somebody who is a an ambassador? Well, the the number one has got to be uh, you're a listener, right? So you you are very aware of your of your limitations, not only of your limitations, but of what you can do. But you are so aware of your limitations too that you immediately become a good listener to identify those other skills that you might require to make your solution richer, to make your solution a better one. So it's all about public participation. And it's not just, you know, when I say good listening, it's not just about listening to the solution, the solution bringers, but it's also about listening to the people that are, you know, that are in trouble, the people that, that might be dying if you don't feed them or et cetera, right? So having a capacity to listen and to find value, intrinsic value on whatever you're hearing so that, that those, those phrases, those solutions or, or those problems that people bring to the table become the triggers for your thinking. That's why I'm so pro uh, early engagement. Like for instance, when we talk about 
consultation, a meaningful consultation. I mean, I, I don't think I need to tell you that I completely disagree with, you know, doing consultation with indigenous groups just for the sake of ticking boxes, right? That is, it's really all about discovering is this even feasible? Should we be doing this? And you will never have that answer just by analyzing a culture that you don't belong to. So it's really important that you have that capacity to listen, to listen carefully to what other people, what other people that are part of the game have to say, and also the capacity to translate what they're saying to something that is of value to you, to something that you can go, I get that. Even if you don't relate intrinsically because it's not really part of your cultural makeover, you still can look at it and go, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that's important to you. And I, it might not be important to me, but if it's important to you, then it's important to this group solution that we're trying to bring or this, this collaboration. So we can't, we can't just focus on what the common values are. We have to open our minds to the individual values that might be completely necessary for each of the groups that is represented. How common is that mindset in your experience? You know, it depends on where you go. There are just certain, certain cultures, a certain upbringings that is like you're talking some foreign tongue to them. They don't, they don't understand, you know, there's the, depending on where you move around the world, different societies have different positions there. You know, there's, there's certain prides, you know, that been running for centuries, you know, we have, we have centuries of experience doing this, etc. And so you, you have to approach those cultures in a different way. Right. But a, a, for the most part, I would say that, especially in a situation where it's, it's a difficult situation and you need to find a solution soon, all of a sudden, people's prides diminish. You know, people start realizing that maybe I do not have all the answers. Maybe I need to learn how to listen. So that's where the value of crises comes into play, right? So sometimes we, we only learn how to listen to the other voices when we lose complete control of things. And so that forces us to all of a sudden go, maybe they're, maybe they're trying to communicate something that I need to listen to. In your experience, though, I'm assuming your experience hasn't all been in the crisis or the emergency sort of zone. So how well does that, or how, maybe it's a better question to ask, how you would listen better in that non, when the emergency isn't helping you? Right. So I, I, that's a very good question. There are, there are two other instances in which I would actually say this skill is, is transferable. One is when you are doing some risk analysis or you're trying to create some sort of risk prevention or analysis evaluation before you do something. So all of a sudden, the, the experience that you had managing a crisis kind of like gives you an idea of what you should be prepared for in case it does become a, a crisis or to prevent it from becoming a crisis. But you're right. Most of the time, especially because I worked on, on development of development projects and sustainable development, it was all a matter about not fixing things or stopping things for, from getting worse, but it was about building. And I think that that's 
one of the greatest satisfactions because all of a sudden you're not finding just solutions. You go beyond solutions. And when you can collaborate, not just to find solutions to a crisis, which is more or less is just focus on stopping something negative, when you're capable of capable and you have the time to go beyond finding solutions, immediate solutions, then you can dream. And so when you're collaborating with with people that think differently, people that think not like you, but that think in, in within the frame that they were brought up or that they were educated in, etc., then your your ideas, the ideas that each individual brings to the table, get enhanced exponentially because there is a collaboration in there's a, there's a collaboration in dreaming if you can uh, accept that as an answer, right? So uh, there, is, there is a synergy, a positive synergy of identifying places and identifying solutions and identifying phases of a project that you had no idea could be done, right? So all of a sudden, you discover that your your initial thought, your initial deliverable at the end of a project is nothing but a little piece of a huge, much bigger dream that involves and, and encompasses the dreams of many other people. Has that happened to you? Like, have you, it, it sounds like it has happened to you. And I'm curious what, if you could describe the example or the instance. Well, I, you know, I could, I could give you a, a million examples, but, you know, just working working in Southeast Asia with institutions, local institutions that are trying to get that are trying to terminate human trafficking, specifically kids, you know, like kids, uh, kid, children prostitution. And all of a sudden you discover that it's not just about rescuing them, but that you can actually go beyond that. And it's just focusing on how do we get these families to stop selling their kids to the, to the trade and uh, go beyond and maybe create another chapter that will actually bring education to those children so that the children have a future and they don't have to worry about, you know, how they're going to survive. But also bring, expand that, extrapolate that idea and bring some sort of education to the parents so that you actually show them how they can actually prevent having to sell their children so that and still survive right so there is other ways there's other means to actually to solve their 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 ongoing tragedy of not being able to pay the bills or get educated etc etc i can think of oh my gosh so many you know you talk about uh being uh socially responsible and you you talk i mean it's a trend right so you talk about people make sure that you know where you're buying your coffee because you know not everybody is actually buying coffee from places that respect the work and and the, the humanness of the people that are picking the coffee you know and 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 it's so true it's not just a trend it is it is so important that that we realize that one of the huge, as, as consumers, you know, living in a, in a society that consumes, as consumers, we have to be responsible enough to inform ourselves. Because if we are not collaborating to respect other people, to the people that are supplying what we consume every day, we're not respecting humanity. So it's, it's really important that we understand that 
when we support an industry that is not sustainable in the human side of things, we are actually failing at being collaborative. In fact, we are collaborating with the enemy. You know, I, I don't want to try and summarize why, why collaboration and why this sort of intercultural work is important to you, because I can, I can feel it in all of your answers. But it seems that that human, the human nature, the humanness element, and, and I think just recognizing and respecting the humanness element is the thread through all of that, through all of your, all of your work and why that work is important to you. Would that even be close to correct? Absolutely. I totally agree. You know, I, there's a story that I, I tell once in a while to, to people. I, you know, when I was a, a child and I started to discover the concept of discrimination, for instance, I recall sitting at uh, the kitchen table one day. I was chatting with my mom and uh, she had gone shopping and she put a whole bunch of canned goods on the table then you know she was going to put away in the cupboards afterwards and and i caught myself peeling the labels of the cans and at the end and my mother looked at me and she said now i don't know what's inside of the cans and she said why did you do that and and so you know elaborating on my thinking about that i realized that what discrimination had done to me was implant in my innermost part of my heart, this idea that labels are wrong. And it has, they, they might work on cans, <laughs> but they don't, they don't work on people. And so it's, it's such a foundational concept. You know, when you come into a group, you can, you can say, let's make sure that we have representation from this group and start mentioning labels. Actually, what we're actually doing is we're bringing different voices. We're bringing different, it's not just cross-cultural, is is actually an amalgamation of different human beings. It's all it is. It's so important that we start thinking about collaboration as something that happens between people and nothing else. Stop adding the labels. It's not about balancing how many indigenous and non-indigenous or how many men and women or how many blacks and whites or whatever it might be, right? It's all about bringing to the table people that get it, people that see the rest of the world as this amazing conglomeration of rich cultures, right? It's, it's, not, it's not about differences. It's about this beautiful a puzzle that we make when we come together. You know, it's, it's too often, I think, that we go down the road of picking people who we think are affected by whatever it is we're working on, whatever the project is, as opposed to people who can contribute to, as you put it, the ideas, you know, that synergy of dreaming. Like if you kind of put it in terms of, of a dream and about ideas, it changes how you approach who should be in the room. And I'm kind of using air quotes there, but it's just a, just a sort of a follow-up on that, on that comment that getting past the labels is, is so important for the whole process and just for our own mindsets. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, you know, the, uh, the only frustration sometimes comes that when you realize that labels and that discrimination is just wrong and that you need to collaborate and you need to bring together as opposed to separate and discriminate. The only thing that is frustrating is that 
the systems that support that kind of approach are so rare. You know, like I have, I have the fortune of working at a company, a CWL, that that gets it. A company that gets it. It's not about we're not doing indigenous relations. You know, I said we are actually talking to people that matter. That pe- to people when we, we we go with projects, it's all about look. This is you're part of this project. We need to talk about this. So it's uh, finding the system, finding a system that that. Uh, follows suit and that practices respect towards other individuals without putting labels. Um, uh, it should should be something that is part of your corporate culture. It shouldn't just be uh, we have to do it or the government imposes it on us or you know is the right thing to do when in fact they're rolling their eyes when they say that right. It's, it's is more of it's more of it's so rare, right? And and I know that you get this. There's so many systems out there that preach something, but when you start working with them, you realize they don't get it. The interesting thing, from at least from my experience, is that there are people inside those systems that do get it and are trying to change the system from within. And I've not seen it ever succeed at this point. Like it, there's never been a wholesale change of the system. Is the ongoing battle, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a never-ending battle. You know, I, I I think we could go down a whole bunch of different roads with this discussion, but I'm I'm cognizant that we have just limited sort of amount of time with you today. I kind of wanted to see if there was anything you wanted to add before we sort of jump into just a handful of, of rapid-fire type questions that I use to, to sort of end up the the conversation. You know, I, I yes, there is there is a thought that I always use, you know, and, and I use a lot these days while working with the First Nations, you know, of Canada, of what we call Canada. And that's the idea that, you know, going back to refocusing and, and forgetting for a while, forgetting just for just for one second, forgetting about the preconceived ideas that we might have been given, you know, during our formative years and coming to that, to that concept that our identity should not be established or built on differences, but on commonalities. So when you look at, when you, when you look at Europe, for instance, in the past, you know, handful of decades and all the countries that have through terrible wars you know, divided because my identity is I'm a Serb or I'm a Croat or I am a Slavic and I'm, or I am, do you see what I mean? And they're still moving, you know, the Catalan and the Basque. And so if we could stop thinking of those things as what gives us the essence to, to culture and identity. So uh, culture does feed your identity, but the foundation of everybody's identity should be what makes us all alike. And so when I talk to indigenous groups, I said, you know, you are made in the image of the creator as much as I am. And that's something that they get. Now let's start the conversation from there. You're not indigenous person, and I am not an immigrant or a settler. We're two human beings trying to find a way to get along and build something that will be beneficial to everybody. And so finding identity in commonalities, you know, it just helps you. It's, it's less defensive, for one. It helps you appreciate other cultures. 
And it actually gets you so much further than when you just focus on what's different. In, uh, in my own family life, I've often pointed to the need to, not the need, but the, our drive should be to build people up instead of tearing them down. And I think what you're speaking to around starting from a place where we have a common identity as, as humans is really the foundation of that kind of an approach, I think. And I really appreciate that perspective. Yeah. And, and you know what else? When you, when you decide, when you realize that you're, however pure you think your culture might be, it's, it's not. These days, you know, with globalization, the cultures mix, match, and yeah, there's so much combinations, right? But the second you realize that your identity doesn't get established by the preset uh, number of rules on, you know, well, when you belong to this cultural group, you do this, but you do not do this, etc. When you're open to the to the idea that we're all humans and that there is an identity in that, that that's the foundation to identity, then you can actually adopt other cultures, practices into your own without losing integrity. You're still human. Your identity doesn't does, you don't lose identity, you just make your identity richer. Thank you for that, Jorge. That was, that was a fantastic conversation. And I, I have to ask if you're ready for a couple of, I'll say three sort of rapid fire questions to sum up for today. Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Uh, so I always like to ask people, so I guess it's really not a rapid fire question, but I'll, I'll pretend it is. Is there a book you suggest that everybody reads? Oh my gosh, there's so many. But there is one that I that I am uh, reading again called "Leading with Cultural Intelligence" by David Livermore. Great, you know, it's, it's the real secret to success, and it's all about. It's one of these, you know, it might come across as a formula book, but in fact, what it is is a book that introduces the concept of cultural intelligence. Uh, the right way that teaches you exactly what cultural intelligence is all about. I have not, I have not come across that one, and I, I'm going to have to add it to my my reading list. My my reading list is getting longer and longer with every person I speak to. But <laughs> the next question is: Would you? This one might be a, maybe a little harder to answer, but is there a habit or a practice that you have adopted because of your international work? Absolutely, I. Uh, I don't believe in doing the tourist thing. I believe in I believe in appreciation of other cultures by immersing yourself, and uh, and so I believe in going into those places where people are going to look at you uh, and see another human being, so that they actually can disclose who they are. So making I try to blend as much as I can. I think that. Giving people the benefit of the doubt is the best, uh, the best approach to building the right attitude towards me and everybody else. So instead of saying, oh, that guy is so crabby all the time, uh, is always think there is a reason why. There is a reason why that man or that woman is the way he or she is. And so giving people the benefit of the doubt allows you to approach them uh, in a different way. And, and uh, you know, I've made friends with people that nobody else wanted to make friends with because of that. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how that would happen too, because sometimes it's, it goes back to your point about being able to listen. And sometimes that's what people want first and foremost. And almost always it's just 
you don't even need to do much more than that. And you've got a friend. That's right. But you, have, you have to listen beyond the verbal statement. Right. So my last question, this one's probably the hardest one of the day. Are you a coffee person or are you a tea person? Uh, you know, I'm both. I, uh, and it all depends on circumstances. It's not my taste, but, you know, there's... So, for instance, if I am in Costa Rica, I am a 100% coffee guy. <laughs> <laughs> Costa Rica or Italy, I mean, you have a coffee in either one of those places and it's so enjoyable, right? But then, uh, but if you're in other places, you know, a tea, and if it's raining, you can count on me having tea. That's fantastic. Thank you for your time today, Jorge. It was it was a real pleasure to to speak with you and, and dive into a few examples and a, and a lot of your insights. And I'm sure we could do this again. Maybe there's a part two in the making at some point. So sure. Thank you very much. No, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it shows, but this uh, I'm passionate about this this subject. So thanks for the opportunity to to show myself a little. Thank you. I'm grateful for my conversation with Jorge because it reminded me of the deeper reasons for collaborating. I appreciate the idea that collaborators are a kind of translator of ideas between people who get it, people with the mindset to see how our individual strengths come from our individual uniqueness. If we can just ask the right questions, we can provoke the right answer. I like how Jorge describes our identity as a reflection of those things that we share as humans as opposed to using labels that might highlight our differences. I really enjoyed the conversation today, and I can envision a part two somewhere in the future. Thanks for joining us. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list, so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating. <laughs>